We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're joined now by Julian Castro, former HUD secretary, former San Antonio mayor, and the only Latino to compete for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. Castro is still on the campaign trail, working to increase voting rates and on turning Texas blue, among other things. Julian Castro, welcome to Forum. Hey, it's great to be with you, Mina. You know, we were just talking in the previous segment about a police reform effort in San Francisco that removes police from many mental health related crisis calls. And, you know, you also made police reform a focus of your campaign. And I saw advocating for removing police from certain settings as well, like school discipline and so on, also making misconduct data more accessible. What do you think the Democrats need to do? What do they need to be forcefully advocating for in terms of police accountability? A a number of things. Um, And I think Joe Biden had it right uh, a few months back when he said that um, we can take several steps that are basically a down payment on what we need to do uh, in the months and years to come to ensure that uh, we can both have public safety Right, keep communities safe, but also reimagine policing uh, so that we don't see what happened to George Floyd happen again. And we're able to be more effective at getting people the resources that they actually need to keep them out of the criminal justice system in the first place. So a lot of the things that were included in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that the House of Representatives passed, banning strangleholds, banning chokeholds, um, uh, limiting or restricting or eliminating qualified immunity for police officers, ensuring that there's more transparency and accountability for officers who use excessive force, uh, including making Department of Justice funding contingent on communities adopting uh, greater transparency measures, setting up a database, for instance, that is accurate and up-to-date of officers who have engaged in excessive force so that it's not so easy for an officer who's used excessive force to just go down, you know, 30 miles down the road or something and get another job, Uh, those types of things. And then also exactly what places like San Francisco are beginning to do, which is to figure out in certain situations, whether it's uh, someone who has a mental health challenge or somebody who's homeless, um, but other situations, people that get into a fender bender, for instance, like when do we, when is it okay that instead of an armed cop, somebody else actually shows up that can be more effective in resolving whatever situation that is and to provide both um, a benefit to the community and to ensure that, you know, if it's somebody who's homeless, they're able to, to get housing opportunity or on track to get housing opportunity. If somebody has a mental health challenge, they actually are uh, given resources that address that instead of entering this revolving door of being locked up because they committed some minor offense um, and then ending up back on the street and the cycle continues. It costs the taxpayer more and it's ineffective. 
you know, cops will say that they don't want to be social workers, that it goes beyond the scope of their job. And so I think there's a way to reimagine public safety that uh, benefits everybody. You know, labor is a key constituency for Democrats, uh, but also people have pointed out that it's police unions uh, that tend to be some of the biggest impediments to reform. I mean, do you believe that uh, the Democrats need to forge a different kind of relationship with unions, especially in light of the fact that they do tend to ally with Republicans, but we are talking about unions here. Yeah, I just see a difference with regard to police unions. Uh, too oftentimes they become um, toxic, completely reflexively defensive about even outrageous conduct uh, by police officers uh, they sweep it under the rug. They do everything that they can to try and get the officer off. A good example of that was people may remember the video of that 75-year-old man who was pushed down by a couple of officers and, start, and hit his head on the pavement, started bleeding out. Well, the union, you know, they were, those two officers were disciplined. The union there, uh, I, I want to say it was in Buffalo, they went to the mat for those two officers. These unions cannot even acknowledge when officers have clearly committed um, a violation of policy and used excessive force. And I think it's fine if, you know, I believe obviously in labor, I support um, people's right to collectively bargain and, and always have, but I don't think that these police unions um, should have impact on transparency or accountability or disciplinary procedures when it comes to the job that they have, particularly as police officers, and the fact that we've seen time after time uh, that excessive force has been disproportionately used on people of color and especially African-Americans. You need to just change that system. It's a system that's not working. And my hope is that uh, the AFL-CIO and AFSCME and others will you know, reevaluate their relationship with some of these police unions that have been the biggest offenders. Hmm. Also related to criminal justice reform, you've proposed decriminalizing the border, uh, decriminalizing border crossings. First, what's your reaction to the news, of course, this week, the latest court filing that the parents of 545 children still have not been located? This was a human rights violation it amounted to intentional infliction of psychological torture on kids, separating them from their parents to try and make an example of them, which by the way, it didn't even work. Uh, and now the Trump administration was so devious and so incompetent that there's still 545 children that are not reunited yet with their parents. Uh, we need to do everything we can in our country, use all of the resources that we can to reunite those children with their parents. That's number one. Um, secondly, I would like to see accountability for the people who implemented this program. Civil accountability, I hope that they're held accountable in a civil court of law by these families. And if there are criminal statutes that apply here, I would like to see criminal liability as well because it was very intentional. It was devious. Um, it was done with malice. Uh, and I think out of bigotry and xenophobia, and it deserves to be punished. What do you think the U.S.'s obligation is to these families? 
number one, I hope that um, that they are able to stay in the United States and get the asylum that they that the vast majority of them were seeking, and and be able to live a better life um, together. I hope that they get compensated, uh, especially those children, for the fact that I mean, they're going to live a lifetime scarred by their experience, um, and, you know, as well as the parents. Um, but most importantly, you know, beyond individual cases, we need to get the policy right. Uh, the legal infrastructure that allowed Trump to weaponize the law to inflict this cruelty was there before Donald Trump. You know, the legal infrastructure was there. Yes. And we need to make sure that going forward, that another administration in the future does not do the same thing. And, you know, and I believe that, um, that Joe Biden is on the right track in terms of reintroducing common sense and compassion into our immigration approach. Uh, and, my hope is that and my belief is that he'll be able to work with Congress to get good things done and that he'll also use executive authority where need be to move away from Trump's cruelty. I want to play you some tape from last night's presidential debate when immigration came up and when the separation of families came up and get your reaction. Let's hear this exchange. It starts with Biden. Parents were ripped. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Let me ask Kristen, you about I will say this. They went down. We brought reporters, everything. They are so well taken care of. They're in facilities that were so clean. But some of them haven't been reunited good. But just ask one question. Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask of that. Julian Castro... Did you find what the president was saying revealing there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He showed uh, he there was a window there into how he thinks uh, such disregard for the lives of those 545, 545 children who are still separated from their parents. Uh, and also, Mina, you know, let me take on his argument there, because what he's saying is that the Obama administration built those cages. So, and for those who are interested, the Washington Post has a pretty exhaustive story on this uh, today. So um, people may remember that in the summer of, I believe it was 2014, we had a huge influx of people who were coming from to the border, southern border from Central America. It was a kind of a precursor to what we saw in 2018. Um, and the administration at that time was, was overwhelmed trying to figure out how to handle the people that were suddenly coming in much greater numbers. And one of the things it did was that it created um, a, a processing center to take people in that was a converted Walmart warehouse that had some of that infrastructure that looks like cages that it would put these families in, you know, because they didn't have another place to put them at that time. Here's the thing. And this is what Trump never talks about. The Obama administration was actually trying to move them together, keep them together, did not separate them the way that Trump did, and move them on as quickly, usually to, to be able to come into the country if they're seeking asylum, to be here if they had relatives, to find those relatives, 
uh, if they were unaccompanied minors to find a safe place for the minors. Whereas Trump took that infrastructure, separated the families, he introduced that policy of, of routinely as a policy, separating those families, tearing them apart from each other. And as we learned recently from a Department of Justice Inspector General, consciously, even if they were babies, they were told to separate those families, to deter others from coming. So whereas the Obama administration was trying to address an issue and, and figure out, okay, look, temporarily, how can we put folks here and then get them to a safe place humanely, this guy, Donald Trump, had a dark heart and people like Stephen Miller, you know, bigots that he's put in charge of these policies had their way. And so they inflicted psychological torture on these kids. He never says that. He never goes on to the fact that they weaponized the legal and physical infrastructure that was already in place in order to conduct their torture on these kids. He has to own that. And what Trump has been, you know, Trump's one skill, as far as I can tell in politics, is that he's a master salesman. And so he takes one little thing like that. Oh, well, you had those, you had the, those cages. But he doesn't tell anything about, you know, how that was actually, you know, what the purpose was, how it was used, the difference between what happened with Obama and what happened with Trump. He has a dark heart when it comes to people that do not look like him, especially migrants. And, you know, I, I believe that um, this is gonna be a big stain on our national legacy going forward. And uh, I hope in the years to come that every time some community thinks, even thinks about naming a library or a high school or anything else after Donald Trump, that they'll first think about what he and his cabal intentionally did to these children. We're talking with Julian Castro, former U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary, recent Democratic presidential candidate. What are your questions for Mr. Castro about the upcoming election? What do you think of federal housing policy? What do you think of his immigration reform ideas? The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, it's interesting as you bring up race, and one of the things that you've also called out was how basically the president, you've described as stoked white fear and resentment by suggesting that the suburbs were going to be overrun with people of color, with black people, and that somehow they would destroy the suburbs. I mean, you saw that as shameful, you said. Can you talk about the use of that and, and you know, the context of your knowledge and understanding of broader housing policy? Well, this is, you know, what the president is trying to do right now. Um, right before his opportunity for re-election is to garner back support that he has lost in the suburbs across the United States. Usually, at least in the last few cycles, you know, the Republican candidate has done better than the Democratic candidate in the suburbs. And that's not true this year. Joe Biden, I think, is doing better overall than Donald Trump. And so um, he's taking a rule that was implemented under uh, my tenure at HUD called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. 
which was unfinished business from the 1968 Fair Housing Act. And this rule that we promulgated said, look, if you're a housing authority, if you're a city, if you're a county, and you get federal taxpayer dollars through HUD, you need to get serious about creating equal opportunity, equal housing opportunity in your jurisdiction. So you have to give us a concrete plan about how you're going to do that. Um, we implemented that in October of 2016. The first few communities started submitting their plans. And it was just getting off the ground. The idea was uh, to, to help further desegregate our nation and make sure that no matter who you are, you can find fair housing opportunity, regardless of the color of your skin or your background. He's trying to use that rule to say to suburbs, hey, um, you know, uh, basically all of these people of color are going to move into your suburbs and low income people if, if Joe Biden is allowed to be in charge. And what's, what's really disappointing and, and um, infuriating about it is that it's a big lie. It's a lie about what the policy is. The policy did not dictate exactly how communities have to do this. It didn't say you got to zone this way or do this kind of land use code. It's a lie about the suburbs today because the suburbs are more diverse than they were in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. People do live closer together now. Um, you know, it's like he has this notion of what the suburbs are that's set in 1955 or earlier. And then third, I think it's a lie about most white people. I think it undersells them. I think the vast majority of white people are not sitting at home today in 2020 trying to figure out how they can keep more black people out of their neighborhood. Um, but that's the way that he is very intentionally appealing to them. And he's doing it for his own political purpose. You know, He wants to juice just enough support, he thinks, from enough people who agree with him on that kind of stuff. And he thinks that if he does that, he might be able to pull off another narrow electoral victory in these states with significant white working class populations like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, that he only won collectively by 77,000 votes in 2016. And it looks like he's going to lose this time. Well, let me go to caller Steve in Sacramento. Go ahead, Steve. Steve, are you there? Uh, so we will try to get that in a moment. Let me go next to Mariana in Berkeley. Hi, Mariana. Hi there, Mina. Um, I teach human rights education at San Francisco State, uh, and um, the abduction of children and separating them from their parents, in my opinion, is the most serious human rights violation going on in this country today. The U.S. is the only country in the whole wide world that has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So my question is, why aren't we using the language of human rights to talk about this crisis? Well, Mariana, let's get Julian Castro's answer right after the break and stay on. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you. This is Forum.
Here's what's coming up Monday on Forum. Longtime journalist Farai Chidea joins us to talk about her new podcast, Our Body Politic. The show aims to provide news by and for black women and women of color in a political media landscape that's dominated by white men. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqbd.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum, and you can find me at M. Kim Reporter. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Julian Castro, former U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary and recent Democratic presidential candidate. And with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786. On uh, email, you can reach us at forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. Just before the break, uh, Julian Castro, Mariana in Berkeley was asking this question about the separations as a human rights violation of, of the child. Well, I think we should address it in that way. And I mean, I guess let me kind of answer that um, first a little bit differently to say, I I do think that in our conventional way of talking in politics, and this is probably has always been true. I mean, there is a a gulf between how we talk in politics and the language of, um, you know, uh, practitioners of human rights law or folks that are concerned about human rights. There's often a gulf there. But then again, we don't often have to deal with um, a president on American soil who is violating human rights this intentionally here. Um, And so I take the point. I think it is a good point. I do think that we should use that language more. Also, as a lot of your listeners will know, too many folks in the United States, I think, over the years have seen ourselves as separate from the community in the world that is concerned about human rights and the accountability of the United States to those human rights. Almost as if we assume, well, of course, you know, we're, we're uh, respecting everybody's human rights. But whether we go back to um, you know, slavery or Jim Crow or the civil rights era or uh, the treatment of the LGBTQ community or any number of other instances um, you know, the Japanese internment, Japanese American internment camps, we do have a history that we cannot be proud of and to learn from. And I believe that the separation of children from their parents at the border is going to go into that category and that we need to talk about it in moral and, and blunt terms like that. Well, let me go next to Guillermo in San Leandro. Hi, Guillermo. Hi, gracias por tomar mi llamada. Hey, Julian, I will have a question. When the new administration comes in into the White House and President Biner offering you a position in his cabinet, which positions you will consider to take? Well, Guillermo, thanks. He's optimistic that Biden uh, will win. Uh, Julian Castro, if you were offered a cabinet position, which one would you like? <laughs> they, um... You know, right now uh, I'm in this odd spot that for the first time in a long time, I'm not aiming at anything. Um, You know, I ran for office when I was 26 years old for city council. I lost the mayor's race when I was 30. I got elected at 34, San Antonio mayor. And then 
uh, served President Obama for uh, two and a half years at the end of the administration. When I got out of the, the administration, I pretty much knew that I wanted to run for president. Uh, these days, uh, you know, I'm, I'm content where I'm at. I'm in San Antonio. I'm helping candidates as I can, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, and I'm, you know, right now I'm going to just be where I'm at. And if an opportunity comes up, we'll see what it is. But I'm not aiming for anything. Do you think Biden could win Texas? I think he can. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the last two polls that have come out, and there have been many of them now that, that are similar, but the last two polls that have come out, two days ago, there was a Quinnipiac poll that had it 47-47, uh, so it was tied. And then yesterday morning, morning consult came out with a poll that had Texas at 48-47 Biden. And um, because right now, the suburbs have abandoned uh, the Republicans under Donald Trump and all of the demographic changes that people have been hearing about that have been talked about, written about in the media over the last 15 years on Texas are coming true. Um, you know, the uh, Latinx community is growing like crazy. Uh, the Asian American community is making a bigger and bigger difference, especially in suburban communities like in Fort Bend County outside mm -hmm. of Houston. Uh, and uh, the African-American community in Texas um, is growing more slowly, but continues to grow. Um, we're seeing tremendous turnout. In fact, right now, Texas actually leads the nation in turnout. I checked this, I think as of the end of yesterday, we had about 500,000 more votes than California in early vote. And, um, and we have the high, we have the most number of people or the highest percentage of people relative to the total number that voted in 2016. So more than 70% of our 2016 number has already voted and we still have uh, a week of early voting because early voting ends next Friday at seven o'clock central. And then of course, election day. So, I mean, Texas is going gangbusters um, and, and we'll see what happens with it. Um, will Biden come to Texas in the next 11 days or so? I mean, I know that's been something you've been really wanting him to do and a little frustrated that he hasn't made Texas more of uh, part of the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, as I see it, uh, Texas is as competitive as a number of other states that we traditionally think about and are invested in, whether we're talking about uh, Ohio or uh, Iowa or uh, in this cycle, Arizona, Georgia. We also have, like Georgia and like Arizona, although Georgia has two of them, we have a very contested and competitive Senate race here between MJ Hagar and John Cornyn. So what I see is, look, if you're the Biden campaign, you're sitting on at least $180 million cash on hand advantage. That's what they reported the other day. And that's growing because he's still out raising Trump and we only have 11 days left. And you're tied in Texas, according not just to two polls, but many of them. That's just too much to ignore. 38, million, 38 electoral votes. I think that that's just too much to ignore. I, I know that you're a concern that Texas could feel slighted by Biden, even though the numbers are really good for him, despite the fact that he hasn't done as much or put as, poured as much resources there. Do you think in some ways he's, he's slighted you, Julian Castro? And I ask this because we've had um, 
Listeners in the past wonder why you didn't play more of a prominent role in the Democratic National Convention. And then Mike writes here, I've long been an admirer of Mr. Castro. I have to admit I was taken aback by his personal attack on Joe Biden. Politics are politics. And I don't believe he owes Biden an apology, but I hope he can patch things up with Biden so he gets a chance to serve in his administration. I mean, there was some talk that it may have been an effect of you going going after Biden pretty hard during uh, the primary debates. I mean, is Mike right? Is there a need to patch things up with Biden? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think I, like all of the other people who were running uh, after we got out of the race and uh, and then, you know, as, as Vice President Biden emerged as the nominee, pledged our support. And, you know, there was never, between the Vice President and, and me personally, there's never been any kind of friction or, you know, negative words said, we've always had a good working relationship and personal relationship. Uh, You know, certainly he's been in politics a long time and I never felt or thought that he took anything from either me or any of the candidates on the debate stage personally. Um, So, and I've been out there, you know, I was out in Arizona last weekend. I'm going to be in Nevada and in Colorado for him this weekend. The DNC, um, uh, you know, the lack of a speech for me at the DNC was simply because I think they had a schedule where they were highlighting the stories of everyday Americans. I thought they did a good job with that. Um, I was asked to participate in a video that had former candidates, not to speak, but to be in a video and that scheduling didn't work. And so I didn't take that as a personal a front of any kind. And I look for, you know, I've been helping him. I look forward to helping out in these next 11 days. So, you know, I would just tell folks that it goes into the category, just like, you know, uh, Senator Harris obviously is very supportive and helping him, even though uh, uh, they went at it in a debate or two that happens in politics. And, um, you know, uh, as people know, all of us are rowing in the same direction because we know that Joe Biden is a great uh, leader, a man of character, and we understand the urgency of replacing this president who has just been so terrible for our country. Well, Chris in Oakland, join us. Hi, Chris. What's your question? Yeah, Mr. Castro, the, the Washington Post has an article in today's paper that talks about the fact that Trump is doing better with Latinx voters this time than he did in 2016, and in some cases, pretty substantially better. Um, What's your idea about what's going on, and what's the Democratic Party doing wrong in its inability to attract Latinx voters against a candidate who's a racist lunatic? Uh, Chris, thanks. Uh, Julian Castro? Yeah, Jenny Medina in the New York Times had this story the other day of... um, of a particular um, higher support level among Latinx men for the president than last time. And, you know, I think one of the things that's going on is probably is it's, there's a huge gender gap in this election, even bigger than we usually see. And so you may just have that force, that effect or dynamic taking precedence uh, you know, it's, I've, I've always thought there are certain, um, certain people that like a strongman. They like the attitude of Donald Trump, even if they don't agree with him uh, on a number of issues or they think sometimes that he's too boorish or whatever. Like people 
people like that attitude. And he's been able to convince some people that he's not really a politician, uh, not like every other politician. And I've judged his success as a barometer on the cynicism that there is toward politicians generally. The ultimate, ultimate irony is that he is actually the biggest quote unquote politician, somebody that tells you one thing and actually does another, somebody that lies to your face, somebody that is incompetent, but oversells and exaggerates his, his accomplishments. I mean, the guy is the ultimate politician and maybe his biggest feat has been convincing these folks who believe him and believe in him that he's the least politician type guy out there. Uh, I mean, you know, to each their own, I guess. But <laughs> what the Democrats need to do with, uh, with Hispanics is it needs to be, and the Biden campaign is doing a lot of this outreach now, and so is the DNC in different states, especially the swing states. But it needs to be a 365-day um, uh, full-court press all the time to register and to turn out uh, Latinx voters. And that's what I think we have the chance to build on. I also think it's going to be, if I can just say, I think it's going to be more important than ever because what could emerge from this election is a new electoral map where the 78 electoral votes of Arizona, Texas, and Florida form this new block that, that will, can and will determine who wins the presidency. And what do those states have in common? They each have huge and growing Latino populations. So both parties are going to have to speak in a more direct, more impactful, more compelling way uh, to the Latinx community in the years to come if we see that happen. Well, this listener writes, I hope Julian Castro will be in the Biden administration. He's smart, honest, and a good person. He was a great HUD secretary. It's wonderful to hear his voice. This listener tweets, really glad to hear Julian Castro on forum. Brass tacks kind of guy, competence that's sorely missing. I mean, what is next for you, Julian Castro? You're one of the highest profile Latino Democrats, but right now you don't have an elected office. I know you're <laughs> you're playing a prominent role in your family, but I mean, is there another run in your future? I mean, what are your plans? Yeah, I mean, there could well, right now. Yeah, I, so I have People First Future, which is an organization that is um, uh, investing in and helping bold progressives up and down the ballot for 2020. Uh, I have a podcast called Our America. Folks should take, check it out. In fact, this week, uh, the the episode that we have on Our America is uh, family separations. I speak with Jacob Silberoff, the NBC News reporter that actually went into one of these processing centers back in 2018 and now wrote a book about family separation. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm sitting on uh, the uh, board of an affordable housing company and doing a couple of other things that are kind of in line with what I believe in. And so right now I'm, I'm going to help others politically and, and, you know, be here with my family and then figure out what's next uh, in terms of another office. Like I, right now I'm not taking anything off the table, but I'm not putting it on either. Right. I'll, I'll remain opportunistic in terms of what I see. I do believe that at some point uh, I may jump back in. Like, I, I love um, feeling like I can make a difference through public service. And, you know, obviously I like the policy aspect of it. I mean, but, but it has to be something where I feel like I can actually make a difference in people's lives. I felt like I did that as mayor of San Antonio. I felt like I did that as secretary of HUD. Uh, and the question is, well, what is the best way to do that 
in the future. Well, we just have a minute with you left, and Steve did call in, so I do want to ask Steve in Sacramento to quickly ask his question. Steve, what's your question? Uh, well, I guess it's not working. Steve is attending a Yimby <laughs> conference, as far as I know, and he just wants to know about Yimby housing policy. Very quick. Yeah, so I'm addressing the uh, Yimby conference. Look, I know what I know is that we need to make sure we build more units that are affordable for the middle class and for lower income individuals. Um, and we need to do that in a big way in this country. Too oftentimes in different communities, NIMBYism has prevented people from getting, families from getting affordable housing opportunity. And we need to balance that out. I understand that it always, especially in a place like San Francisco, gets caught up in issues of displacement and gentrification. And I think that we need to balance that, right? We need to be thoughtful about it. But we do need to create more housing opportunity out there because we have a rental affordability crisis, a big crunch, and it's only going to get worse if we don't balance it out. Julian Castro, former HUD secretary and recent Democratic presidential candidate. Thanks so much for giving us your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mina. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We turn now to the music that's getting you through 2020, the installment from our series that we've launched through the end of the year. This song was sent to us by listener Damon. For me during this pandemic, cathartic experiences just haven't been working for me, to be honest. And I've been feeling like I need the opposite effect to truly get away. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, I just happened to luck on to this jazz tune by guitarist Grant Green back uh, from the early 1960s that instantly became my go-to mood changer. Uh, this is not jazz of midnight cabarets and smoke-filled rooms, but instead jazz filled with bright sunshine and fresh air. It gives me the feeling of zooming down a beautiful two-lane highway on a spontaneous road trip. That was Grant Green's Jean de Fleur. Thanks to listener Damon for sharing it with us. And if you want to hear all the songs listeners are recommending, check out and follow KQED's The Music Getting You Through 2020 playlist on Spotify. Thanks to Blaga Torres and Jameson Weiss for producing today's segments. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for calling in today, listeners, and for listening. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.